You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. We've all got many obligations. Many of us have obligations at our job or at home, perhaps to our spouse, or if we have one, or our kids, to our parents. And you know, our obligations to our parents don't just end when we move out of the house. We may have obligations socially to friends, to co-workers, to extended family. We certainly have obligations to the state we saw two weeks ago to obey and to honor our government and to pay our taxes. And besides all of that, we also owe obligations before God. And as we look at our busy lives and all of these obligations that we have, I think it's necessary for us to ask, what is our highest, what is our most pressing obligation? What must we do above all else? And that is the question that the Lord Jesus is going to answer today as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel Today we'll be in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. And today we're going to see three points. First, Jesus is Lord over the Scriptures, and He has the right to tell us what our obligations are. Second, we're going to see that our chief duty is that we must love God with our entire being. And third, we must likewise love other people as we love ourselves. So without further ado, let's just jump into our first point in which we see that Jesus is Lord over the Scriptures, and He has the right to tell us what our obligations, and particularly our chiefest obligations, are. It's the final week of Jesus' ministry. He has come to Jerusalem to be condemned and crucified and resurrected, but we aren't there just yet. Instead, we're in the middle of the week. And Jesus is in the temple, and while there, He has been challenged by a number of Jewish religious leaders who want an ultimate showdown with him. If you've been with us throughout this series, you know that Jesus faced a lot of intense hostility from Jewish religious elites during his ministry. They repeatedly tried to trap him and discredit him. And now it's all coming to a climax in this great debate. And as we begin this morning, this debate has been raging now for a few rounds. In round one, Jesus was challenged by the Sanhedrin, the highest-ranking body in Judaism. They tried to trip him up with a question about his spiritual authority. But Jesus deftly sidestepped their trap and instead exposed them as frauds, as people with evil hearts. And having been exposed, the Sanhedrin's representatives slunk away. Round one to Jesus. In round two, Jesus was challenged by an odd pairing of two groups that really didn't like each other. The ultra-nationalistic Jewish group called the Pharisees and the Herodians who were pro-Roman. And together these two groups asked Jesus a tricky question, this time about taxes. And they thought, however Jesus answers our question, we can get him the death penalty. But Jesus avoided their trap as well and just answered their question very straightforwardly and they had nothing left to say. Round two to Jesus. Last week we saw round three. Yet another group, the Sadducees, 
the party of the wealthy aristocrats, attack Jesus by trying to destroy the credibility of his preaching about the resurrection of the dead. But Jesus solemnly rebuked them for their ignorance of God's power and word. Jesus showed how the doctrine of resurrection was found even in the earliest parts of the Bible. And now in our passage today, we see the effect that Jesus' words had on the Sadducees. Uh, in verse 34 of Matthew 22, we read that Jesus silenced them. They had no way to respond, and so they too retreat. Round three to Jesus. But the debate is not yet over. Look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. See, the Pharisees aren't yet done with Jesus. They want one more shot at him. And so, like the elites of Psalm 2, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. And they concoct a new plot. And they put it into action. And this now begins round 4. Look at verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now, when we see this term lawyer, we probably think of the lawyers in our society today, the ones on TV or the real guys who are at court or who prep contracts. But this fellow is not that kind of a lawyer. The Greek term just suggests that he is a law expert. He is an expert in the Old Testament law. And now this law expert is sent to put another question to Jesus. And again, this is not a nice question. This is not a, um, an honest question. Matthew tells us this question was to put Jesus to the test. It was to tempt him. It was to induce him to say something that would publicly discredit him. Now, Matthew's comment that this expert is testing Jesus is kind of surprising if you read the parallel in Mark's gospel. Because in Mark, this fellow doesn't sound like he has bad intentions at all. Mark 12, 28 says, One of the scribes came up and heard Jesus and the Sadducees disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him... See, there's no sense that this is a trap in Mark. And indeed, at the end of Mark's account, Jesus says to this law expert, You are not far from the kingdom of God. That's a pretty positive comment. So it's kind of surprising here in Matthew to see this guy being presented so negatively. What is this about? Well, probably the best explanation of this difference is Mark is interested in telling us about this man who speaks to Jesus, and Matthew is interested in telling us about the character of the group that sends him. Overall, the party of the Pharisees was opposed to Jesus. And this question that is put to Jesus was part of a plot that they concocted. Matthew tells us that clearly. It is their evil intention he's focusing on here. And yet we must remember the Pharisees are not comic book villains. They don't all think alike and, and have the same ideas. Yes, many opposed Jesus, but there's a fellow in John 3 called Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee and he had a high view of Jesus. And here I think we have another Pharisee that seems to have been genuinely interested in Jesus. It just so happens he is the one that is sent by the party of the Pharisees. And now this expert puts the question to Jesus, which they've asked him to use to trap him. Verse 36, he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now the Jews had counted 613 distinct commands in the Old Testament law, and the question is this, Jesus, pick one. Which is most important? 
Now, this is a question that the Pharisaic rabbis would still be debating centuries later, and it's not hard to see why, if there are 613 options. But I think that's the point, right? Whatever Jesus says, this law expert should be able to say, well, you know, Jesus, there's another command over here I think is more important. And then they can argue, and perhaps Jesus will lose the debate. That is what the, the Pharisees want here. But you know, Matthew's Gospel's already shown us that this is going to be a fool's errand. Because Jesus said this back in chapter 5. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, the law and the prophets is a way of talking about the Old Testament. And Jesus here says, he is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. And Jesus said in chapter 11, verse 13, all the prophets and law prophesied until John. The whole Old Testament had a prophetic expectation, and that expectation is fulfilled in Jesus. And as the one to whom the whole Old Testament points, Jesus is the culmination and the completion and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is therefore its authoritative interpreter. And Jesus says here he hasn't come to abolish the Old Testament. That is to say, he hasn't come to say, ah, we don't need that stuff anymore. Get it out of the Bible. No, the Old Testament remains a vital testimony to God's character and holiness and faithfulness. But the Old Testament, law and prophets, stand fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the end of the Old Covenant. He is the end of the Old Testament. He is the end of the Old Order. And He is the beginning of the New he founds the new covenant in his blood. The New Testament revelation comes in him and his apostles. He begins the new order, the church age. And as this one who bridges old and new, Jesus has the authority to impose commands upon those who claim his name. Now, many of the commands of the Old Testament are no longer in force because Jesus has repealed them. That's why it's okay to eat pepperoni on your pizza. That's why it's okay to wear clothing made of different fabrics. Some aspects of the old law have been repealed. And Jesus has the authority to prescribe commands for the new order, the church age. Just because the old law stands completed doesn't mean that we get to do whatever we want. No, God still has commands for us. Some of those commands are brand new. That is, they had no precedent in the Old Testament. And some of those commands are commands that Jesus has reapplied from the old law to church-age believers today. But what I want you to know is this, friends. Jesus reigns and Jesus issues commands. Now today you might say, well, what commands am I supposed to obey? Well, we've got the New Testament today. We've got the words of Christ and his apostles. And we can have great confidence that the commands we find in the New Testament have application for us. And so that's what we need to look to when we want to know what is God saying to us today. But Matthew's gospel has told us that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is Lord over the scriptures. And so if the Pharisees think they can win a debate with Jesus about the Bible, guess what? They're going to lose. And going back to the question with which we began this sermon, what is our highest and greatest obligation? Friends, listening to Jesus, the Lord of the scripture, is someone that He's someone we can count on. We know what he, when he speaks, he's telling us the truth. All right, now all of that leads us to our second point. 
And now Jesus tells us that our highest duty is to love God with all of our being. All right, so the law expert puts this question to Jesus, and once more Jesus avoids the trap that is intended by just giving a straightforward answer. Look at verse 37. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus says the most primary obligation in the Old Testament law is the command to love God. Now, I don't think that this command is well understood today. Because when a lot of Christians talk about loving God today, what they describe winds up being something very different than what the Bible seems to intend when it talks about loving God. And I think the reason for this is that many well-meaning Christians don't have a firm understanding about how we should interpret the Bible. And so when folks encounter this, this language about we need to love God, they say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to love? And then they import the definition of love that comes from the culture around us. So how does our culture talk about love? Well, pop music tells us that love is basically sex. Hollywood tells us that love is an uncontrollable feeling of attraction. And so unsurprisingly in the Christian world today, there is a growing sense that the love of God that's talked about here is really having romantic feelings towards God. In some quarters, this is even portrayed as an erotic love. And folks that hold these views, they'll justify them by saying, well, you know, in Ephesians 5, we're told that a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And Paul says, that mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Revelation 19 calls the ultimate reunion of Christ with his church the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so people who have this romantic view about how we should love God feel vindicated. They'll say, well, see, the Bible tells us that our relationship with God and Christ should be understood as romance. And as a result, friends, we wind up with Christian songs that are often sung congregationally in churches that are all about trying to provoke emotional feelings of romance for God by appropriating the form of romantic pop songs, by utilizing romantic and even provocative lyrics. So, in the musical climax to one very popular song today, we're told that God's interaction with us is like a, quote, sloppy wet kiss that makes my heart turn violently inside of my chest. Likewise, another song put out by a very well-known Christian artist says to God, I want to lay back against you and breathe. Feel your heartbeat. This love is so deep, it's more than I can stand. I melt in your peace. It's overwhelming. And this romantic understanding of our love for God is reinforced by Christian teaching that advances this same viewpoint. In preparation for this sermon, I encountered one blog post entitled, How to Romance God, which counseled, among other things, do things that stir your affections for Him. I encountered a women's ministry that taught this, quote, I love that God uses the same Hebrew word, yada, to describe His relationship with us and sexual intimacy. That means that single women do not have to wait until marriage to experience yada, sex. And I'm not just picking on 
fringe groups here. One of the finest Christian writers of our generation, who I deeply respect, has written, quote, I am deeply persuaded that my faith needs to be driven by intimate romantic attraction. Others have taken this even further. I knew a Bible teacher here in this town for many years who would say the Song of Solomon and all of its eroticism is all about us and Jesus. He would say when we pray, each of us, whether you're a man or a woman, needs to envision yourself as Jesus' wife, laying your head on his breast, asking him for favors. Friends, with respect, I think this is all so mixed up and unbiblical. Yes, Christ is a bridegroom. But his bride is the church, the universal church, the collective body of believers everywhere. It is not each individual believer. That is never taught anywhere in the Bible. In fact, that would destroy the imagery. Friends, Jesus is not a polygamist. He isn't betrothed to each of us individually. He's betrothed to all believers corporately. It's a picture, a picture of the eternal bliss and union that will characterize God and his people in the new creation. I know in our individualistic culture, we want to individualize this. As one Christian song says, it's just you and me here now, only you and me here now. But friends, that is not how heaven will be. We each will indeed enjoy the benefits of the new creation individually. But it's not like we're each going to be a wife to husband Jesus in the new world. Now, maybe this upsets you, because this romantic view of loving God is everywhere today. So I wouldn't be surprised if at least some of us have bought into this. And I'm not here to rain on your parade or steal your joy. I'm here to call you back to what's biblical. Because what's biblical is what's true. And I think this romantic view of God's love or of loving God is not faithful to the Bible. I think it's a product of biblical illiteracy, which is a huge problem in the American church today. So what is a biblical view of God's love? Well, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament here. Let's go back and actually look at that passage. Jesus quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, turn there with me. And we're going to read what Jesus actually says, or is quoting here. Now, in Matthew, Jesus only quotes verse 5. In Mark, we learn he also quotes verse 4 to the law experts. So we're going to start there. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is historically called the Shema, and to this day it's recited twice a day by observant Jews throughout the world. For millennia, this was understood to be a central proclamation of the Jewish faith, because this statement points Israelites to their God in a very specific way, using his covenant name, Yahweh, and it pointed them to a vital truth about Yahweh, his oneness, or we might understand this as his uniqueness, that there are no other gods, and therefore... Each Israelite was to be dedicated only to God, the God who lives. And on the heels of this declaration that this is who God is, here's how the Israelites were to respond. They were to love him. And they weren't like to love him every once in a while, like for an hour on each Sunday morning, or I guess for them the Sabbath. No, they were to love him totally, with all their heart and soul and might. In our passage, Jesus changes this to mind, but the sense is pretty much the same. In every way, the Israelites were to love God, with their bodies, with their actions, with their hearts. When we think of hearts today, we think of emotions, but ancient people understood the heart as the seat of intellect. So the idea is the inner life and the outer life are all 
to be used in service to loving God. Loving God with every fiber of their being. You say, okay, that's fine, but what does it mean to love God? How precisely was this to be obeyed? Well, here's a place to apply a good principle about Bible study. If you come to a verse in the Bible and you say, I don't know what this means, read what comes before it and read what comes after it. Like 90% of the time, it's going to tell you the answer. And when we do that here in Deuteronomy 6, here's what we find. Look back at verse 1. God says, now this is the commandment, or Moses says, this is the commandment, the statutes and rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over. Okay, so Israel is about to go to the promised land. And as they do, God says, hey, remember that law I gave you and keep it. It's very interesting that if you do a study on the idea of people loving God in the Bible, what you will find in both Testaments is overwhelmingly our love for God is linked again and again with obedience. But that isn't all we see here. Look at verse 2. He also says that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments. They're not just to obey. They're also to fear God. You say, well, what's that? Is that like a horror movie? No. Fearing God is an attitude that views God with reverence and honor, that takes him seriously, that recognizes that he sees everything we do and he evaluates it. And one day we will give him an account. This is another idea. If you do the word study yourself, you'll see fearing God often appears in texts that talk about loving God. Third, later in the chapter, drop to verse 13. We read, It is the Lord your God whom you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. It's a concern about exclusivity. God wants his people's undivided allegiance. This also is another idea that we see in many passages that talk about the love of God in our Bible. Rendering God our true allegiance, being loyal to Him, serving Him alone. So what I'm saying here is if you look up the Hebrew verb translated love here and look at all the places in the Old Testament where it appears, talking about how people relate to God, you will again and again see the concepts of obedience, of fearing God, and of rendering Him allegiance. For the sake of time, I'm just going to point you to one more reference here. In Deuteronomy 13, when God warns the Israelites against false prophets, Moses says, God allows false prophets to exist for this reason. Deuteronomy 13, 3. The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. See, the false prophet is a test to see if Israel loves God. That is, if they will have allegiance to Him, if they will fear Him, and if they will obey Him. So what I'm trying to tell you here is in the Old Testament, the love of God is more about allegiance to God, and attitude to God, and actions we take in service to God, much, much more than it is about romantic attraction or emotional affection. Now, at this point, someone might say, well, wait a minute. This Hebrew verb in Deuteronomy 6 and in all these passages sometimes talks about marital love and affection. And that's true. But frankly, I think it's irrelevant. Because even in English, we also use one verb, love, in many different contexts. I love my wife. I love my son. I love my parents. I love college football. 
I love pizza. And we understand that although I'm using that same word over and over in those sentences, I'm saying very different things. Right? I don't love my son in the same way I love pizza. I don't love my wife in the same way I love college football. The word is the same. But we understand the meaning is dependent on the context in which it's used. And what I'm saying here is, when people loving God is described in the Old Testament, it's ordinarily described with reference to allegiance, fear, and obedience. Now, am I saying then that loving God is an emotionally dead sort of a thing? No. I know that in evangelicalism, yes, there are some people who are hyper-emotional. There are also some people who are anti-emotional. Both of these are unbiblical. Psalm 5 says this, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. The love of God is joyful in Psalm 5. Not some unrestrained romantic ecstasy, but it is a joy that creates a response of gratitude and celebration because of who God is and what he has done. Loving God should not be emotionless when we think about what he has done for us. He sent his son to the cross for me and you, friends. That ought to move our hearts. James 2 says every good thing we have in our lives comes from him. We should be grateful to God. We should have joy in God. And that's what Jesus tells the law expert. But how should we Christians living on this side of the cross apply this command about loving God today? I said earlier that the Old Testament stands fulfilled. Many of its commands have been abrogated. Is this command abrogated or should we obey this command? Should we still love God? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says this, If anyone loves God, he is known by God. That, that language of being known by God basically equals salvation in the New Testament. So those who are saved are characterized by having this love of God. In the same way, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's a word in the New Testament that talks about going to hell. So loving God is a life or death issue, just like in the Old Testament. It's a heaven or hell matter. It evidences whether we are rightly related to God or not. And in the New Testament, loving God is defined in the same way as it is in the Old Testament, being about our allegiance and our attitude and our obedience. For instance, Jesus says in John 5, 42, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. He tells some unbelievers they don't love God because they don't receive him. Friends, foundationally loving God is about our allegiance to him. And on this side of the cross today, we can have allegiance to the Father only if we exercise repentant faith in the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We've got to have allegiance to Jesus. Matthew's told us this again and again. We've got to follow Jesus no matter the cost. Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If we don't follow Jesus or if we bail out because it's too tough, friends, it shows we don't love him. We are still lost. And loving God is about fearing and obeying God, maintaining that attitude of reverence and awareness that God is watching us and will evaluate us. And that leads to obedience. So Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. 
4. I don't know how we could put it more plainly than this. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying we're saved by obedience. Rather, 1 John 4, 19 says we love because he first loved us. Our love of God is a response to God and his love. His pursuing love in the gospel. His electing love, regenerating and making us new and able to believe in him. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 directly tells us that loving God is a result of God circumcising our hearts, of making us new. Okay, so we're not saved because we say, hey, I need to love God, I'm going to white knuckle it and pull it off. No, the love of God is a byproduct. It is a result of work that God himself does in us as he brings us to himself. And to be very clear, friends, we are only saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But friends, if we come to Christ, our lives are going to change. And it will produce this kind of love in us. Now, as I wrap this, for this second point up, and by far this is the longest point, so don't worry. I want to point out two more passages in the New Testament that I think are relevant here. First, just like in the Old Testament, there's a sense of exclusivity that's inherent in this. But Jesus said earlier in this book, in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. There are so many things that demand our allegiance, right? Our jobs, our families, even sin. But in the end, Jesus says you can only serve one master. Who's it going to be? God or something else? Jesus is clear. We cannot serve God with something else. To do that is not to love God. God demands our exclusive, total allegiance. He demands that we submit entirely to Him, body, mind, and soul, recognizing that all we are and all we have must always serve Him. And doesn't this lead to the great command for how we live in the New Testament, Romans 12? 1 and 2, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's the same idea. Dedicate all of ourselves, body and mind, thoughts and desires to God always. That is the love and worship we owe God. That is the first and great command upon us. Let's sort of bring this home a bit. Friends, do we have allegiance to Jesus before others? Do other people know that we're Christians? Or are we ashamed to bear the name of Christ before our family and friends and co-workers? Do we represent Jesus well before the watching world? Do we tell others about him or not? Are we loyal to Jesus when we're by ourselves? What actions do we take when no one is around watching us? You know, God still is. What's our thought life like? God sees that too. Do we fear God? Are we cognizant that he's watching us? Does that reality shape how we think and act? Or have we compartmentalized God and told ourselves a lie? Oh, God's not interested in what I do in my downtime. God's not interested in how I conduct myself at work. Do we want to obey God or are we indifferent to his word? Or worse, do we play games with it to justify our sin? What do we serve more than God? What squeezes obedience to the periphery of our lives? What do we always make time for? Even if it takes priority over important things we should be doing like Bible study and prayer how are we dedicating ourselves to God how does our involvement in our family reflect our love for Christ that's a big idea in Deuteronomy 6 We've got to pass the faith on to our children how does our financial life 
reflect our love for Christ? How do our hopes and desires for the future reflect our love for Christ? Friends, in all these things and all the rest, our obligation is to love him alone in every way. But we come now to our last point, which is we've got to love other people as we love ourselves. Now, Jesus could have stopped in verse 38. He didn't need to keep going. But he, he does. He has another command to point this law expert to. And he does that because if he had just stopped at the love of God, then he would have given a very incomplete and false notion that God has an interest only in our personal devotion with him and no interest in how we interact with others. But you know, when you look at like the Ten Commandments, yes, there are commands about how the Israelites were to relate to God, right? No idolatry and keep the Sabbath. But there were so many commands also about how they relate to each other, forbidding murder and adultery and dishonoring parents and the like. And so to truly understand God's heart, Jesus also wants to tell the law expert he cares about how we treat others. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, A second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says this second command is like the first in its importance, in its primacy, because this command is also foundational to the totality of the Old Testament, just like the command to love God is. The law and the prophets and the whole Bible wouldn't make sense if either one of these halves was not true. If we didn't have to love God and if we didn't have to love other people. Now how should we understand this second command? <coughs> the command to love others. Well here Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19.18. And Leviticus 19.18 is in a chapter all about interpersonal ethics. That say don't exploit the weak. Don't plot revenge on your enemies. And again and again, God says, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, over and over in this chapter to make people realize he means business. And the core of what he means business about is this command, that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So instead of wronging someone we're angry with, instead of plotting vengeance, the law said, no, love your neighbor. And you know, the, that verb love is the same verb love we just looked at a few minutes ago. Now, of course, here it has to mean something different than it did in the command to love God, right? Here we're not talking about showing allegiance and obeying all of our neighbors. That can't be what this means. Neither can this mean we should show romantic affection for all of our neighbors. No, the love that is owed to a neighbor is this. Love them as yourself. Now, tragically, today we live in a culture where many people have no regard for themselves. We see this in the tragic rates of suicidality and drug addiction and so forth. But the biblical expectation is we should be concerned about ourselves, not in a self-indulgent kind of way. And Matthew 10, 26 says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I'm not saying we need a worldly self-love. But Ephesians 5 says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And that's the idea. The Bible expects that ordinarily we will act and care for ourselves and pursue our own interests. And just as most of us have that profound concern for ourselves, God says in the Old Testament, you've got to have that same concern for others too, for our neighbors. Now this leads to the classic question put to Jesus in Luke 10. Who is our neighbor? Well, many Israelites interpreted this very narrowly. They didn't want to have to show love to many people beyond those immediately around them. But you might remember that when Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor, he replied with the parable of the Good Samaritan basically tells us everybody is our neighbor. And this, Jesus says, is the interpersonal command that stands on par with the command to love God. We've got to treat everybody else with the same kind of love we would render for ourselves. 
Now, again, we've got to ask, is this command required of the church-age believer today? And the answer is yes. And we know that because this one verse, Leviticus 19.18, is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. This ethic of showing love to others is certainly something that is still required of us today. And to help us think about what this verse requires, quickly I want to look at the three places where this is quoted in Matthew's Gospel. It was first misquoted back in Matthew 5.43 by the Pharisees, who said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus responded by saying, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Jesus' day, this command had been twisted. People were being taught, you don't have to love others. You can just love the few people around you, and you can hate anybody that does you wrong. But Jesus says, no, love even your enemies. Pray even for those who persecute you. That's a very difficult command, isn't it? Similarly, Jesus tells the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 that he should obey the command to love his neighbor as himself. And there, this command functions as a stand-in for all of the interpersonal commands of the New Testament. This is really a summary of how God wants us to treat others. You know, in a rational state, we will seek not to harm ourselves, but to care for ourselves, to do good for ourselves. And if we apply that standard to others, we won't seek to harm them, but to benefit them too. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 7, 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Here's another summary of the, of the whole law, Jesus says, of interpersonal relationships. It's the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. And now finally, once more here in this passage, we see this verse quoted in a way that joins this command to the love of God. And friends, indeed, these commands are deeply related. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So indeed, we are obligated to both of these commands, to love God and to love others. How should we apply this command today? Well, there are many things we could say. But let me just focus on a few ideas Jesus raised back in the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks so much about interpersonal ethics. Do you have enemies? If so, how do you interact with them? Do you hate them? Are you happy when they suffer? Do you imagine your revenge? Or do you love them and think, how can I help my hated enemy? Do you have persecutors? Many of us do. Do we only ever pray for God's justice upon them? Or do we pray for God's mercy that they would repent? Do we return evil for evil to them? Or do we overcome evil with good? Are we always characterized by sinful anger, lashing out at others? Friends, we wouldn't want to be treated like that. Do we covet other people's spouses and try to induce them into adultery? That self-gratifying pursuit is the opposite of love. It is exploitative and wickedly injurious. Do we make a habit of lying to others, playing fast and loose with our words so that we always have the upper hand with other people? Do we love and forgive our spouses or do we seek justifications to hasty divorce? Friends, the standard here is so high to seek the good of every other person that we encounter in the same way that we would seek our own good. Just as the standard in that first commandment is so high to tirelessly love God always with all that is within us. You know, friends, when we think about these two commands, what we realize is how easy it is for us to fall so short. And I think we know that we fall short of these commands most when we think about the ultimate example of these commands, which is Jesus himself. 
In John 8, 29, Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. Jesus loved God in perfect obedience to this command. And Jesus demonstrated this selfless love that we have all failed to demonstrate. Philippians 2 tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Out of his love for us, Jesus left the glories of heaven above. He humbled himself in a way we will never understand. He took on true humility, and he died the worst death imaginable because he put our interests first. Friends, Jesus has succeeded where we have failed. And more than that, Jesus has made satisfaction for the debt that we owed. You know, Jesus just told us these are the two most important commands. And we've all blown it terribly, haven't we? We owe a debt. We owe wrath. We owe judgment. We owe eternal condemnation to God. But Jesus said earlier in this book, in Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus bore the judgment that we should have borne, and he offers forgiveness for all of our sins. More than that, he offers to credit the believer with his own perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus doesn't just offer to take away all our sin. He offers to allow us to stand before the Father with his own perfect righteousness, with all of the times that he perfectly obeyed all of God's commands credited to us. And today, friends, if we will hear Jesus' command to repent and believe the gospel, then we will enjoy these benefits. And more than that, we will, we will experience a work of renewal in our lives such that we will be able to begin to obey God in these areas as we ought. And we'll begin to love him more and to love other people. Now, of course, we'll never be able to achieve this perfectly in this life, but we will be increasingly made more like Christ who did live a life perfectly obedient to these two commands. But today, friend, if you have never come to Christ, I want to warn you, you are on a collision course with God's wrath. So I pray this morning, if, if you are a believer, that you will examine yourself by looking at these commands and seeing where God wants you to make some changes in your life. And today, if you are not a believer, I want you to see how far short you have fallen from God's standard. Do you live every moment in total subjection to God? Do you endlessly love everybody you encounter the same way you love yourself? If not, friends, you need the mercy of Christ. So may we love God, and may, may we love other people more and more. And may we rejoice in God because He has sent His Son and done all, this great things, all these great things for us.